MailChimp presents. Say you're the head of marketing strategy for a small clothing store. You've perfected digital communication with your loyal customers, and now you want to expand into brick-and-mortar locations. But you haven't totally perfected your segmentation strategy, and double-checking the right emails are sent to the right customers just takes so much time. Intuit MailChimp can help. With Intuit MailChimp's automation and segmentation tools, personalizing each email based on individual behaviors is made easy. Intuit MailChimp allows you to share your new product launch with VIP customers who follow every release, run a targeted campaign for more seasonal buyers, and send out location-specific emails to promote your store openings among your new neighbors. They'll take care of your marketing needs so you can take care of your customers' needs. Start refining your email marketing strategy today with Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. We all have that elder... You know, like an auntie, a friend, a parent, who drops wisdom on us and changes the course of our lives. This season, I'm talking to 15 incredible people about important moments they went through and how the elders in their lives got them through it. I'm your host, Jenny Yang, and this is Going Through It. This week, Ijoma Oluo. I still cringe thinking about that moment but it drives me like, you know, we can be motivated by cringe. I know that some people are like never embarrass someone, but realizing like how, how much I had let my whole personality go. And I never wanted anyone to look at me like that again. I never wanted to look at me like that again. When I think about Ijoma Oluo, I would never have guessed that she was someone who would ever let her whole personality go for a guy. She couldn't be that type of person. She's so impressive. Like, Ijoma wrote the best-selling book, So You Want to Talk About Race, and is a leading thinker on race and intersectional feminism. But then again, who is the type of person who could let their whole personality go? Me! I've been that person. (laughs) Maybe you have too at some point in your life, whether it's dimming your light because of a job or a relationship. Why do we do that? I'm so grateful to be able to call Ijoma a friend. Like she and I first met through the internet because, you know, when you're a woman of color who's vocal about race and culture online, you just sort of find each other. And she is the best at teaching us how to be better activists and allies for racial and social justice. So I was completely surprised when I found out that Ijoma was once an angsty young woman who couldn't stop talking about her boy problems, just like me. Today's conversation with Ijoma is for anyone who needs to hear that nothing should stand in the way of you being exactly who you are at your most powerful. Because Ijoma is so dope, but she too was once a young woman who had to grow in her personal life to step into her power. And that growth came from a different kind of elder. 
Not the kind we usually think of like your coach or teacher or your ama or mima or whatever you call your grandma. Sometimes our wise elder could be just a couple years older than us. For teenage Ijeoma, it was a late night conversation with someone in her early 20s that changed her approach to dating and to being her true self. My brother and I were kind of those stereotypical latchkey kids growing up. So my mom worked swing shifts caring for disabled people. And so she would get home from work anytime between midnight and 3 a.m. And so we kind of wandered around and our the people who taught us were mostly like older teens, you know? Yeah, I had these friends that had the party house. Um, and this is, you know, life in the suburbs, right? Um, where you have that one person who has that freedom of a space. Either it's like someone's shed or someone's parents who are gone all the time. Or in this case, I had a friend who had, this is going to be really specific to a time. Um, <laughs> so in the 90s, Jack in the Boxes disappeared everywhere because they had E. coli. And a bunch of people got deathly ill from E. coli, from Jack in the Box. Oh my God. And just to clarify for people, Jack in the Box is a fast food chain, burger spot. Yes. And it was everywhere. And and it disappeared for like 10 years. We did not see it anywhere because this was a huge scandal. So our friends claimed the fame was she got E. coli and got a settlement. And with that settlement, when she turned 18, bought a townhouse. (gasps) Yeah, totally worth it, right? (laughs) I mean, you know... For a week of the runs, you know what I'm saying? And you get a whole townhouse out of it. Thank you, Jack in the Box. (laughs) Thank you. Imagine, you know, 19, 20, 21, 23-year-olds decorating a townhouse. Okay. So I remember along the kitchen, there was a ledge, you know, like above the cabinetry. Those ones that like are useless because it's like eight feet up in the air that went all the way around. That was decorated in Empty vodka bottles, absolute vodka, because blue and white went with the decor. (laughs) So it was covered in that. Um, You know, it was everything, a lot of sun, moon, and star motifs everywhere. It was a very queer house, too. So a lot of, like, gay art. Um, Everything was very dark. A lot of candles. A lot of rugs to cover up, like, spilled bong water. You know, things like that. (laughs) There was always someone who didn't live there on the couch, always something happening. And I was there after work at least three days a week. Every weekend there was a party. I'm sure the neighbors just despised, (laughs) despised us. That was the place where I had my 18th birthday. It was the first place I ever like drank at a party. First place I ever smoked weed. First time I ever like drunkly made out with someone. This was the place because you were safe. That was the beauty of it too, right? People looked out for you. You were safe. Mm. And I was always one of the people who stayed overnight. I was still a teenager. I still lived at home. So the thought of dragging my butt home, smelling like weed, smelling like alcohol was not a thing I really wanted to yes. do. I always stayed the night. You know, it'd be three in the morning. I'd be like, now's my time. <laughs> I get to talk and bear my soul, my drunken soul Ugh. to whoever's left. Yes, a 3 a.m. That's classic 3 a.m. conversations, you know? 
Absolutely. And so that's when I would get into the whole like, oh my God, you know, can you help talk me through this? I'm just so, you know, caught up in this. And there would be like six people left in the whole house. And I was one of those people who would puke and rally, right? I had already puked. I was now capable of having a conversation and I would want to have it. And everyone who wasn't quite there was kind of held hostage, who couldn't quite move away. They were kind of stuck listening to whatever I had to say. And I was in my first real relationship. Okay. So first relationship, what was that like for you? It was awful. He was a bad boyfriend, but I was so excited to actually have drama, right? To finally have what seemed like adult relationships, which was in my, you know, observation, someone to complain about all of the time. And it was an awful relationship that actually lasted longer than it should, got way worse. But I was talking about it and just kind of in this, you know, who knows how many hours I had spent bringing this up. And My friend's older sister, she had the biggest room in the house, you know, sometimes once the party got smaller, she would kind of wander down from on high and sit with us and looked up from like her corner where she sat and just said, you know, Ijama, you're so much more interesting than this. (laughs) Like it was such a gut punch. It's like cinematic. So yeah, she said that to me and I was just gutted and pissed and not ready at all to hear it, you know, not at all. I was just aghast. I couldn't think of anything to say. (laughs) I don't think I've said anything in my books, in anything with like that much impact, but it, it stuck in the back of my head. And when it came time, to end that relationship, it was in the back of my head. But then it just stayed forever. And as a queer person, I would say, this is definitely something I ended up thinking more about cis dudes than just about anyone else I've been with. I would hear this voice being like, you are more interesting than this. And I am and was, and I I still cringe thinking about that moment, but it drives me. Like, you know, we can be motivated by cringe. I know that some people are like, never embarrass someone, but realizing like how how much I had let my whole personality go and I never wanted anyone to look at me like that again I never wanted to look at me like that again and every time I walked away from a relationship that didn't serve me or was holding me back from my life those were the words that stuck in my head and I just I I want every young person especially young women and femmes to know that because all of society tells us we're not, you mm. know, and that and that this this relationship is the end all be all of our worth and everything. Our careers, our studies are all to like have this picture of a domestic thing in the end that's boring, so boring. <laughs> <laughs> and my life has been incredibly interesting, but it's really been interesting when I insisted on not letting a dude distract me mm. from it. Mm-hmm. From your from your glory. Exactly. I remember hearing that sentence word for word again when I was leaving a really unhealthy marriage. And I had a young kid and I was trying to finish school. You know, I didn't get my degree until the day after my son graduated from kindergarten. I had all this responsibility. And I remember thinking, I can do this with the kid. I can't do this with this guy. Ooh. 
and I couldn't. And wow. I, and then I heard that sentence, like, I am more interesting than this. And I had to walk away, you know, and, and it was one of many great choices, but probably one of the best choices I've ever made in my life. And everything I have that I've built with, whether it's my writing career, even raising my family, I've been able to do because I've realized that there are some people who just who want to be with you provided you can never advance past them or away from them in any way and that's not worth it ever mm-hmm. yeah okay so so can we go back to this older sister like the one who gave you this transformative advice like can we give her a name okay i will call her like Sarah. It's funny because we're not even that far apart in age. But, you know, she was she was hella cool back then. It always seemed a little dangerous. I love that. That back then you're 17 and someone who's just four years older or five years older was so much more experienced. Like they seemed so much more adult than you, right? Like I feel like every year between 14 and 30 felt just infinitely more mature and adult. And so I just love that your elder was fully in her 20s. Absolutely. And gave me some of the best advice in my life. I, I remember feeling like jealous. She would like talk to her sister, talk to some of the older kids occasionally, rarely would not talk to me, especially because I was probably the youngest person there. And it wasn't like she was like, I despise you at all. It was like, I don't notice you exist, even though I was there all the time. So then when to address me <laughs> and say, you know, you're more interesting than this, I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, not only have I been seen, but now I've been judged and I wasn't expecting it and I've been found wanting. This is the worst, you know? Yeah. I also really love this piece of advice because, like, I totally relate to the feeling of, like, finally feeling seen when, you know, some boy was attracted to me. And finally, like, having some access to this thing that other, like, boy-crazy girls growing up that I didn't have but that they had because that was a whole thing, right? It's like, oh, my God, you know, so-and-so likes me, but I don't know if I like him. And just being able to kind of share the conflict around it was just part of the way I think especially women socialized growing up. And so, and I didn't date, honestly, until I was 21, <laughs> LOL. And, you know, and so for me, once I finally got into a relationship, I didn't know what I was doing. And I 100% let shit slide and be treated a certain way that um, a more dignified adult now that I am would not have let roll. Like, Back then, I was just so excited about the male attention, personally, that I probably stayed in relationships longer than I should have and didn't really demand a level of respect or treatment that I should have. And so I totally relate to this because I really wish that when I was younger, I had a Sarah in the corner being cool, finally telling me, you're so much more interesting than this. Right. And I think like it's interesting because for young women, especially, is the scene in movies, right? Where you're invisible and then a man finds you attractive and you exist and you didn't exist yes. before. And I think part of what was so cutting was this idea like, I did exist. I had been seen this whole time. I had no idea and I hadn't been interested and hadn't been at all engaged because I had been told time and time again that everything else I had going for me didn't exist if it didn't end with someone wanting to sleep with me, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that was, I think, part of like the shame was, oh, 
you saw me and no one was supposed to be seeing me. <laughs> and somehow I've managed to mess up this thing that I've been waiting for. I've messed it up somehow. Like I, I got the thing, I got the the male attention I wanted and and this isn't bringing me the adoration and respect that I thought it was going to. I mean, listen, parsing out like what is the right attention, what is worthy of discussion. Like, you know, I'm sure you were already doing interesting things at that point outside of your love life. And so to me, I love that, like, she called you out. To be honest, I see that as good organizing, you know, having sort of started my first career in politics as a labor organizer. I always think of things, even like now as a comedian, you know, I, I don't do marketing to audiences. I organize people to come together. And to me, the classic sort of like process for organizing is you got to agitate, educate, right? And then create a path to a greater vision. And Sarah was agitating you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was so agitated. Because <laughs> you're reframing, you're, you're trying to tell people that what the status quo is, is unacceptable moving forward. And that's what she did. And I love that. I love that she did that because we probably wouldn't have gotten who you are now if it wasn't for that. I'm wondering, do you feel like you're more interesting now? I, I absolutely feel more interesting now. You know, I built everything kind of on my own and I know who I am. I was single for a very, very long time. My whole writing career I built on my own. I've raised my children on my own. I've built my mom a house. I've traveled. I've done all these firsts in my life that I had to realize I, I wasn't going to wait for this relationship to do. And I am very happily partnered right now with an amazing whole human being. And I could not have come to this had I not been an interesting person when we started dating, had I not known who I was and what I wanted out of a relationship and what I didn't want and what I want out of my life. And it didn't dim my light. It didn't make me less interesting. I'm kind of walking a path with a witness. You know, he's walking his, I'm walking mine. And we talk about it with each other. And sometimes we walk together and sometimes we just cheer each other on. And it's beautiful, but none of that would have existed had I not been completely comfortable up until the day we started dating with the thought that I could have been single the rest of my life and had a whole fulfilled life full of love and full of happiness and trials and growth. And yeah, I, I definitely, I feel it. You know, like I, I would date me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good sign. Yes. Yeah, there were a lot of years where I don't think I would have, you know, um, but I, I would find myself quite, quite funny and strong and interesting and someone that you would want to partner with. And, and I was my own partner and I was a great partner to myself for a long time. And now, you know, I get to share that with uh, another amazing, great, interesting person. I really like this idea of like a partnership is being able to witness each other's journeys together. I love that. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I have the best cheerleader in the world and I'm his biggest fan. We are building things together, but it's not that we become one weird blob of a, of a person. <laughs> it's because you're interesting on your own. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. 
finally finding love and being at your most powerful because you found love in yourself? This is all I want for everyone. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that the source of some dope woman's self-esteem issues was like a random dude who was much less interesting than her. Like, thank God for Sarahs who help us see ourselves for the worthy people we are. I mean, I wish I had a Sarah when I was younger. Before I became a comedian, I was a young director in one of the country's largest labor unions, you know, fair wages, get out the vote, contracts and bargaining, rah-rah stuff. And I was very impressed with myself. That is until I fell into the deepest burnout and depression of my life. Yeah, I couldn't function anymore. So I took workers' comp leave from my job and I attended this group therapy thing called assertiveness training. And it happened a few times a week. So I remember telling one of my closest work friends about this group therapy and she immediately laughed in my face. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> you Jenny, you are the last person who needs to learn how to be more assertive. And I don't blame her for laughing because like I'm an extroverted person who speaks my mind. At least that's my public persona. But when it came to asserting my needs and managing the boundaries of my interpersonal relationships, whether at work or in my personal life, I struggled. I was a classic overachieving workaholic who was not great at knowing how to navigate the stress of other people's demands. I took care of everyone else and ignored myself until I broke. And so the wisdom I'm taking away from Ijoma's story today is that sometimes it looks like people have their shit together, like, in my head, Ijoma seemed like someone who always had it all figured out. And to my friend who laughed in my face, I may have seemed just fine in the assertiveness department. But you don't know what people have gone through. You don't know where I've been. <laughs> we socialize women to think of ourselves as vessels for other people's joy instead of our own. And I love how Ijoma talks about building the confidence to consider yourself enough, to believe you're enough, not because of a partner or a job or a possession, but just because the very nature of your existence says so. Sarah was right. Going Through It is an original podcast created in partnership with MailChimp and Pineapple Street Studios. Executive producers for Going Through It are Jayanne Berry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Our managing producer is Agarenish Ashagre. This season is produced by the all-star team of Sophia Steiner-Evoy, Emerald O'Brien, and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. And we're edited by the irreplaceable Aaron Edwards. We're engineered to perfection or very close to it by Davey Sumner. Our theme music was produced by Raj Makija. Dawood Anthony also produced original music for this season with additional tunes from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Extra special thanks to Himia Freeman for his support on this production. And of course, the biggest thanks to my own elders for everything and for being the inspiration behind the show. Mom, Dad, Margaret Cho, Tracy Kato Kiriyama, Keiko Agena, Tim Sams, Gina Lu Gong, Quan Fung, 
Michelle Coe, and so many more. And thanks in general to my loud-ass partner, Corey Higgs, for staying quiet in the house for me. And thank you for listening.